Hi, everybody. Can you hear me? Are we okay? Yeah? yeah? Good to see you. I've been missing you away for the last three Sundays, so it's really good to be back with you guys here at New England uh, for a Sunday evening. If you're new here, my name's Joel, and we have... If you're not new here, my name is also Joel. I've been told, told to stop saying that because it doesn't make sense. It, my name is not conditional on whether you're here or not. Uh, I'm always called Joel um, all the time. Um, but uh, we are going to start a new series of messages today. Uh, we are in the book of Matthew. We actually spent a lot of last year in Matthew, uh, which is the first book in the New Testament. Easy to find if you've got your Bible with you. Maybe you want to flick there now. Um, we're going to carry on from there uh, today, having finished the last series we were doing last week, the, the Hearing God series, and we're coming straight back into to the book of Matthew uh, today, going through it uh, nice and slow. We, we like to go through the Bible slow here at Emmanuel. Uh, we, we think that's important. We like to go through it just slow enough to be confused by it. Uh, it's very important to us. We find that if we read it too quickly, we don't get confused enough. And that's a real problem. We want to get thoroughly confused because really understanding the Bible uh, comes on the other side of being confused. If you read the Bible quickly and think you've understood it, uh, you have not understood it. Uh, You've only begun to understand it when you get really confused and then you start to ask questions and dig deeper and think, how does that fit? How does that work? What does that mean? And you begin to to get more wisdom as you persevere with it. So we believe in going through it uh, slowly. And actually, that's kind of a theme for this series that we're going to do as we go from Matthew chapter 10, which we've got to uh, onwards. Uh, we, we will notice a few ways in which, in the life and teaching of Jesus, things get said that are hard to place alongside other things that you already know or things that Jesus says at other times. And you, you end up thinking, how does that fit with that? Is this, is this a contradiction? Is this a, a, a flat-out contradiction of, in the Bible? And what you'll find often in situations like that, as you look closely and, and think more carefully, you start to realize that that point and that point are joined by a further point, a third reality, that, that brings light in which they fit together. You start to see these things that looked initially like they couldn't fit together, they fit together in a wonderful, even beautiful way that, that helps you to enjoy the Bible even more um, and enjoy God even more, more importantly. And uh, we, we might call that, that experience of two things apparently contradicting each other but in the end fitting well together a paradox. That's, a, that's a, a word for it that we often use. And so we've given that as the title for this whole series, Paradox. We'll find a lot of paradox as we go through the Bible, and certainly in Matthew's Gospel, especially in these chapters we're, we're going through now. So that's why we're giving it that title. Today we're looking at, at uh, chapter 10, verses 32 to 42. So we will have those words coming up on the screen, uh, and uh, we'll read them as they come up. Or if you've got your Bible with you, you might return there now. Let's, let's listen to these words as they come up. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men 
I also will deny. Before my Father, who is in heaven. Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Whoever receives you receives me. And whoever receives me receives him who sent me. The one who receives a prophet because he is a prophet will receive a prophet's reward. And the one who receives a righteous person because he is a righteous person will receive a righteous person's reward. And whoever gives one of these little ones even a cup of cold water because he is a disciple? Truly I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. Let's just pray. Father, we're here because we want to meet with you. We want to know you and we thank you for the gift of your son Jesus by whom we've come to know you. We pray that you'd send your Holy Spirit to reveal more of him as we look at these pages of scripture. We pray let them speak to our hearts. Draw near to us now as we draw near to you, each one of us here in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. So Jesus is talking here about loyalty and he's, he's describing the kind of loyalty he requires amongst his disciples and you could you could sort of categorize the 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 characteristics he's looking for in in three that there's first of all the fact that it's a personal loyalty jesus isn't calling people to be loyal to a cause or a set of values or principles or a national flag or even a religion, or even morals, ethics, good behavior. He's, he's not calling us to be loyal to something so general and abstract. He's, he's very pointedly calling for personal loyalty, loyalty to himself. He's, he's comfortable with that. If you think about the, the audacity of it, it's, it's shocking. He's calling people to be Utterly, absolutely loyal. Loyal in the, the highest sense to him. Full stop. Him, personally, him. This is the, the, the kind of language that we, we, we get in, in verses like 32. Everyone who acknowledges me before men, whoever denies me before men, 
I will also deny before my Father who's in heaven. And, and later on, it's, it's, it's very personal where he talks about people uh, loving father or mother more than me and so on. It's, it's so, so personal. And as such, it, it kind of... It, 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 it makes impossible the, the ordinary way that we try to deal with Jesus. The, the, what we tend to do is, as Brightonians and, and, and people in our kind of 21st century Western context, we, we especially like to go for this, this kind of approach. This is the way we manage Jesus. We say, okay, Jesus was, was obviously important. We get that. Jesus yeah, obviously had a lot to say. Jesus, significant person, changed history. We get all that. So what we're going to do is we're going to put him in the category called good person or even good teacher, or even person that started a religion. We've got a category for those. There's a few of them that have come along through history, maybe about a dozen that really stand out. And Jesus is up there as one of those. He's a good person. But the problem with that is that you simply can't say that because he's either everything he's claiming to be here or he's definitely not allowed to be a good person. He either completely breaks and smashes open that whole category, that bin we try and put him in. He either breaks it or you shouldn't let him anywhere near it. Because no good person, truly good person, would ever talk to people like he does here. Unless he was everything he's claiming to be. Unless he has the rights on our devotion that belong only to God himself, this guy's evil. There's no other option. We, we can't do the Jesus was a good person approach. It just does, it snaps in our hands. It doesn't work. It's impossible. It's, it's weird because... In fact, it's the most typical way that people tend to deal with Jesus. If you go back to, to work tomorrow or to college or to, to your, even to your lectures, I wonder what, how many, if you ask the question, would say that about Jesus. We're forced to, to answer the question, who is he? How do you understand him? I, I reckon so many, most people in Brighton would, would tend to drift towards that. Yeah, he's a good guy. It won't do. It won't do. Because no one would, would seek such absolute devotion from people. In this way, talking as though he has particular access to the Father, that he's on a plane with the Father. He's claiming to be God. And people who do that, well, if they're not God, then they're wicked. Nothing less than wicked. So we just can't go there. We have to see that this is a, this is a, a massive, massive statement of identity he's making here. It is a huge demand. And you just don't have that option. Maybe you've never thought of it like that. It could be that you've tended to see Jesus like that. Maybe for the first time I'm forcing you to have to rethink your Jesus because your Jesus won't do. He's either the real Jesus of this book or we shouldn't really be, we shouldn't present an alternative, nice, you know, pleasant, easygoing, you know, good values, good ethics, good morals, good, you know, kind of 21st century Jesus. That's a made up Jesus. This one's so different. We've got to deal with the real one. And he's looking for personal loyalty. He's also looking for public loyalty. He's quite specific about uh, acknowledging him before the public, before men. And if you don't, then I won't be able to acknowledge you before my father. It's, 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 it's demanding of our public allegiance. And, and it's always that way with, with Jesus. 
we live in an era of, of private spirituality, really. People do religion, but they do it very, very personally, in, in the, very privately, very secretly almost. We do spirituality, we kind of do it in the same way that we do voting, you know, secret ballot. Or the way we do internet, you know, we have our, our, our ISP, you know, we have our, we have our, our personal history. And no one, no one gets to know exactly what we might be doing online. No one gets to know exactly what we might be doing uh, with the ballot paper. It's all, we've got, the culture is, is structured so that we get to do some of the most important choices in our lives on a completely private, secret basis. And Jesus, again, he, he won't fit into that way. Because he, he's saying this is either public truth or it's not truth. This is either utterly real to you and everybody or it's, it's not real. You have to acknowledge me publicly. And we would probably prefer not to. Generally, the way we're disposed, you know, especially if we're you know, perhaps pretty introverted or shy, that's a big line for us to cross. I'm sure that if you're a Christian and you follow Jesus for, for a while, you, you might even remember the particular moment where you kind of swallowed and told people that you'd become a Christian, told people about your faith and just opened up about it publicly. And up till then, it was, a, it was something you almost kind of tried to do, sub, you know, sort of just covertly, you know, undercover. And it doesn't really go. You, you try to do undercover Christianity, it tends not to work. It's not really, your heart isn't really in it. You can't really live that way. It's sort of, it doesn't last. It doesn't, it's not got any potency to it. There's something about being public that helps us. It actually changes our situation. It changes our perspective. It helps us to live <gasps> free. I've got that burden off. I can talk about the fact I'm a Christian. I'm, I'm free about it. I'm public about it. It's really important. It's one of the reasons baptism is such a big deal. It's kind of a big deal for us as a church. It's a big deal for Christians generally. It's a big deal, especially if you've perhaps had to struggle with your family or close friends who, who notice when you get baptised, it's such a big public step. You're actually doing something so visible and so visual. It feels like you're deliberately making it public. And it, it's been a painful thing for many even in this church. There'd be people in this room who could tell you the story of, of the, the hurt it's caused for them when they've gone through that public step. And for the, many in Emmanuel who would have to say that this is, this is not theory, this is real. There's pain in going public. There's pain in being open and honest with close people, let alone strangers, about Jesus. But Jesus, he seems to demand it. He wants it. He's calling it forth from us. He's, he's really uncompromising about the nature of this loyalty, personal, public, and thirdly, it's painful. And let's be real, it's, it's, it's violent even. The, the way he talks in verse 34 is shocking. This is the paradoxical element in this passage. Do not think I've come to bring peace to the earth. And if you, <laughs> you only have to go back as far as Christmas to know that that's, uh-uh, you know, bells going off. What is that, how does that fit? Because isn't that exactly what it said <laughs> back at Christmas? It came up, Prince of Peace. The angels saying, peace on earth and goodwill to all men. Yeah, the peace thing was quite a big deal. And now you're saying, no, don't think I've come to bring peace. I've come to bring a sword. What's, what's this about? What's going on? And Jesus deliberately being, being striking with his language to force us to think, to force us to understand 
through paradox, something extremely important. What, what could be the nature of this kind of paradoxical teaching here? In a way, it's, it's not that hard to, to understand because you don't have to be a Christian. It's a, a famous saying going back to ancient times. He who loves peace must prepare for war. If you want peace, you sometimes have to protect it. If you, if you want a peaceful society, you should invest in the military. That's, that's, that's kind of standard wisdom that, that's come down through the ages. And, and it's something to it. You know, it makes it, if you really want to have peace, you've got to, sometimes you've got to arm, you've got to protect, you've got to train, you've got to be ready to fight to protect people if you want a peaceful world. So there's something paradoxical about that that, you, yeah, I can see how that fits together. And certainly that helps a little bit in understanding this because Jesus as the Prince of Peace, has come to bring about a peace that necessitates warfare. He really has come as a warrior. He's described that way from the beginning of the book. When Jesus is first anticipated, you could say, in the first few pages in Genesis chapter 3, his coming is described in terms of war. It, it's, it's, it's Jesus that's referred to when, when the serpent... The snake in the garden, the, the kind of origin of all evil on earth, is told someone is coming who will be born of a woman who will crush your head and you will bruise his heel. In other words, you're going to get destroyed. Evil, you are going to get destroyed. I am, God's saying, I am taking you down. I'm after you. I'm coming for you. I declare war on you. There is a war declared in the opening, state, the opening scene of the Bible. A war is declared, God against evil. And God says, I'm going to defeat evil through someone who's born of a woman. In other words, a human being who is God will come and destroy evil. And you will bruise his heel. In other words, that the man that does this will be wounded, will be hurt in the process. There will be bloodshed. There will be, there will be some, some damage done. Jesus came to bring fire upon the earth. Jesus came to bring war. Jesus came to bring damage to an enemy, to a real enemy. We need to make no mistake about that. There's always been a martial element to the, 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 the goals, the vision, the plan that Jesus has for, for, his, for his life and calling. And we need to, to get this clear because it will help us to understand the nature of, of discipleship, the nature of trying to follow Jesus. You're following a warrior. You, you really are. You're following someone who's come to fight against real evil, real evil that exists, that we know about. There's evil in the world that needs fighting. But we also know that the way in which he fights it is not with the weapons of our warfare, not with, with swords and missiles. There's a different kind of sword. He's using metaphorical language because the, the enemy is, is so profoundly dug in deep. The enemy is within the enemy can't be dealt with in such a sort of temporal way because the enemy has is, is, is gone right into the heart of each one of us. And so the, the, the thing he's come to declare war on is in the heart of each one of us. And so when we, we feel the impact of Jesus in our lives, the, 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 the warlike conquests of the Son of God in our hearts, it, there's a certain violence that we feel. We, we start to see what he means. He says, I've come to bring a sword. Because what he's come to deal with is the, the core loyalties of our hearts. The things that we most treasure. The things that we've become most attached to and built our lives around. 
and felt I could never let go of that. And this is, this, I must have that. And the things that we, we can't handle the thought of him even touching, let alone wrenching free from us, the, the idea of that causes us pain. We just can't stand the idea of, Jesus, would you really touch that part of my life? Would you really demand that level of loyalty from me? And, and he makes the point clearly here to help us, to be honest with us. I've come to bring a sword. It will feel like that sometimes. For the Christian, there's no way of escaping the reality that following Jesus will sometimes involve seismic ruptures, even in relationships, that cause pain. And sometimes make us even think, well, how could you let me this way? This is so painful. And he's warning us right here, kindly, in Matthew's gospel. He's saying, be real, be ready. Because what I have to set you free from is, is dangerous. Your loyalties are twisted. And I must help you. I must pull you free. And it will hurt sometimes. It will hurt You'll hurt to the point where you'll think that I'm your enemy, but I'm not. I'm your loving saviour, and I've come to help you. And he, he makes his point by, he goes for the third rail. What does he go for? He goes for family. Whew, wow. Is anything more close to the, to the bone than family? Now, we feel that in 21st century UK. Think how it was felt to his hearers in first century Judea and Galilee, people for whom family was prized so much more dearly than it is now. Family. You, you don't get between a first century Jew and their family. You just don't do that. That's the thing you can't touch and you mustn't touch. Jesus goes there. He goes even there. He makes it specific. He makes it... It makes it very clear. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. I've come to set a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. What is he talking about? How can he, how can he talk like this? But he does. And some of us, we, we've, again, known exactly this. Some of you, like I said earlier, I suppose, you, you've known some of the pain and the experience of what it means. If following Jesus means causing upset with family, what do I do? What do I put first? What do I put first? Following Jesus or being deeply misunderstood by my family, by my parents, making decisions that my parents think are absolutely crazy because I know clearly that Jesus has called me. And some people might flippantly want to do that because they want to stick it to their mums and dads. That's not what he's talking about. That is not what he means, trust me. Jesus loves family. Jesus honoured his parents. Jesus wrote the Ten Commandments, honour your father and mother. Jesus is very clear about that. He's not just some kind of 60s rebel. He's very happy with honouring parents. But when it comes to a choice between that and him, he's clear. No question. Some of you have known that. You've had to walk through that for different reasons. Sometimes it's not in the process of becoming a Christian that we go through the pain here. It might be in a, a stage of being a responsible family member and knowing that following Jesus is going to cause some difficulty for family members that you're responsible for. That will happen for many of us, some of us already. 
because, because when, we, when we follow Jesus, we have to trust that he loves the people in our lives more than we do. And we all sometimes think, no, Jesus, I can't do that because I, I care about these people. If I, if I do what you're saying, that will hurt them. I can't do that. And we're imagining that we have more compassion than he does. That we've got to trust ourselves more than we can trust him with the people that it will affect. But it's going to keep happening. I think of people amongst, I think of friends in this, I think of people that are planting churches. I think of my dear friend Matt Simmons in Amsterdam. Matt and Joe who, who went out there from, from Emmanuel a few years ago and, and they, they've planted this church in Amsterdam that's flourishing. They're starting their third service next month. And it's just growing, it's just amazing. So many people they're reaching, it's so exciting. But I tell you, they could tell you something about this verse. Matt, Matt, Matt told us stuff that just made a lot of us just cry when he told us. In fact, he told us about when, with his, his daughters, it was so hard, four young girls who would have grown up in this church and with you know, schools where they knew the language, knew the culture, had friends. Everything that was kind of predictable in their lives was, was secure. And suddenly, because of Jesus, because of the call, it ripped out of their schools. Ripped out of their church, starting a new city. They don't know the culture, don't know the place, don't know the school, don't know the language. You've got to go to school. Just sit there and try and catch up. He's got four little girls taking them to school. He, he told me that he, he'd go to school wearing sunglasses, walking into school wearing sunglasses in midwinter. His daughters would say, why are you wearing sunglasses? He'd say, oh, he just, he just changed the subject. And it was because he didn't want them to see him crying. Every day, every morning, every morning, he'd just cry, taking his kids to school. What kind of a dad would do that? It's a dad who's seen Jesus. He's obeying Jesus. And he's saying, I believe that you love these girls even more than I do. I trust you. It's not simple. That's what he's talking about. And, and it means, friends, that really we've got, we got to be ready. We've got to make wise decisions. Some of you, you're already, you know, starting to have kids. And um, you've got to get used to deciding what comes first sometimes. Deciding how does, what does discipleship mean? <laughs> it means coming to church on the first Sunday after having your kids. Well done. <laughs> But that's a battle people fight for years to come. What do I do with my kids when they say, oh, I don't really feel like coming to church? Or what do I do with kids that, well, I want them to do well in their sport, or I want them to do well, at, you know, they're getting into something, and it's, it's kind of on Sundays, and, it, you know, I, I, I'll just, never mind. I just, I've got to put my kids first. I've got, to, I've got to make sure my kids are happy. And that sounds good. I get that. I get that. That sounds good. But it doesn't fit, does it? It sounds good, but honestly, it doesn't fit. Because what you're saying is, Jesus, I get the whole loyalty thing, but I'm gonna just, I'm gonna, I'm not gonna follow you on that one. It just doesn't work. What we gotta say is, Jesus, I, I'm gonna trust you. I'm gonna obey. I'm gonna put you first. Marriage, family, whatever, family relationships. It's huge, huge, huge. But by doing it, we actually start to see his faithfulness. Don't use love for family at any time. Listen to me. Don't use love for family, which is a good thing, a beautiful thing, a rare thing, 
in this troubled age where we don't believe in family anymore. We are passionate about family. But do not use love for family as a Trojan horse for smuggling in comfortable consumerism where your life basically looks exactly the same as everybody else's but you've got a bit of Jesus sprinkled on top. That You can't do that. You can't do that. That's not, do you see that here? So let's move on. I, I see here him speaking in terms of devotion. I see him speaking about love and worthiness. I mean, it's such ruthless language. Look, whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. If you think about it, that's actually really, really intimidating. It's kind of almost, be honest, a bit terrifying, right? I don't love him more than everything else. I'm not worthy of him. And it's consistent. I've got to say, that's, these aren't standout verses. The Bible's consistent. It keeps saying the same stuff in different ways over and over and over and over and over and over again. That's why the Bible basically works. It just keep, it's just consistent. So, I mean, for example, just one verse, Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 16, end of, the, end of the letter, last little sign off, P.S., if anyone does not love the Lord, he is accursed. Bye. <laughs> love Paul. Wow. If anyone does not love the Lord. That's, that's, how, that's how the Bible sets out the criteria. What's the most important thing about me? Do I love the Lord? That's it. That's it. That's it. Do you love the Lord? Do you love him? Do you love him like that? Do you love him more than these other things? More than family? Do you love him? And, and we, we might just sort of breeze along, not realizing those questions are meant, they're intended. If you don't, you're in danger. What, what does that do to us? Well, friends, if it, if it doesn't cause you to at least go a little concerned, <laughs> a little bit of inward trembling, then you're not actually paying attention. It's meant to, it's meant to cause us, it's meant to bring us up short. And think, what the, how, do I, how do I know that? How do I get that? What, where does that love come from? I mean, it's, if you think about it, it's almost like the language of a cult leader, right? You know how, how cult leaders do their job? You know what, what, the way a, a cult leader operates is to demand this kind of devotion, to actually replace family units, replace family connection and affection and harmony and and security with their own. They kind of kind of a surrogate family. Oh, we're a family. We're a and they kind of try and make huge claims on their followers and insist on devotion, utter trust by compulsion and fear and intimidation. You ever seen a movie which shows this kind of a character? Some powerful films that give examples of basically cult leaders talking like this. And they even say, people that, for example, in the 60s were, were influenced by Charles Manson, They'll say things like that. He used to say, this is a revolting, wicked man who was a cult leader. He, he, he got people by saying, I would die for you. Would you die for me? He'd kind of make huge claims about his commitment to them and call it out of them. And then harshly question them when they, they gave any, you know, harshly condemn them when they, they seemed to not pull, you know, pull the line. It was, it, was, it was high demand and lots of claim. 
I would die for you. Oh, I love you. Oh, this, we, um, you're my special one. It's just, it kind of, this is documented. It's the way that it tends to, it's not just in that case, but it, it, it tends to be a pattern with cult leaders. And I, I read these words of Jesus, I think, oh my goodness, this is sounding sinisterly similar. So what, what are you saying, Jesus? How, how does this work? Is he, is, he, is he just basically a sort of first century cult leader? And what is this stuff about being worthy? If you don't love me more than that, you're not worthy of me. Maybe you kind of think, well, what does it mean to be worthy? How can I build worthiness? I thought, I thought the, point, the Bible points out that we're not worthy. We can't be worthy. We're sinners. There's a place in, in Luke's gospel where John the Baptist is preaching and he says, he says to the people listening, he says, I want you to produce lives in keeping with repentance. But the actual word he uses is the same word Jesus uses here. He says, I want you to produce lives that are worthy of repentance. What he's saying is if there's something, I want you to live lives that are fitting to, to where you're going, to the, to the, the purpose, to the, to the destiny. Is it fitting? Jesus is saying here, if you don't love me in the highest place, as highest priority, it's, it doesn't fit. It's not fitting. If you love me sort of seventh place, sixth place, or even second place, it's grotesquely unfitting. It looks ridiculous. It's absurd. It's not fitting. It's not, in that sense, worthy. So it's a bit like if I turn up in my six-year-old's jeans to preach to you, it would not be fitting. Simple as that. It would be like, that, just doesn't, that doesn't work. And in fact, think about it, I would damage the jeans, right? <laughs> I would rip them. If you try to love anything, any person, with the love you were created to give to God only, you will hurt that person. Because you will put your hope and trust and confidence in somebody who isn't God. That cannot lead anywhere good in the end. There's a kind of love and devotion that you're meant to give uniquely. We call it worship. That's what he's talking about. It's a kind of love that you, you save, you reserve, and actually all your other loves are added muscle because of it. They're nourished because of the first love you give to him. You love your friends, your family, your husband, your wife, your kids better because you love him first. That's how it works. So Jesus is, is actually pointing something out that's only, it's wise. But why? it sounds so demanding, right? It still sounds so hot. How do we do this? And actually, just the command to love on its own as a cold command can, in reality, create the opposite emotion, can't it? Love me, please. Step one, love me. It doesn't work. Have you ever been told to love somebody? You, can't, you could try to, but it's, it, doesn't, it, just, it becomes fake. I really love God. Maybe you've been around somebody that seems to really love God. You sit in church and you see other people expressing it more emotionally than you and you're intimidated. You think, oh, I could never love God. as much. Maybe I don't. Maybe I'm not worthy. Oh, man, what's wrong with me? And you think, I'll oh, try harder. I've got to love him. Right, I'll put my hands even higher. I'll sing more loudly. I'll cry more. I'll really try. I have an experience. Then I'll really love you. Have you ever been there? I know many of you have been there. I know you have. I have. Are you trying to create something? doesn't really work quite like that. How do we develop this love for him that he's looking for? And he is looking for it. There's no question. 
He wants you to love him that much. How's that going to happen? I tell you, not because of a cold command. Not because you're just trying to obey the law. Best way to understand it, perhaps, is, is the story from Luke chapter 7, where Jesus is at a, a, a respectable dinner party for important people. And uh, a lady bursts into the room. And everybody knows who she is. And they know her story. And they know she's a, a prostitute. Notorious. And uh, they're, all, they're all very well-to-do, moral people. Never done anything wrong, as far as they're concerned. And this lady walks right up to Jesus. And she, she starts to cry. And it's really embarrassing. And she starts to undo her hair and wipe his feet with her tears that are all over them. Tears all over his feet. She's wiping with her hair. And then she gets this perfume. It's worth a year's wages. She pours it out on his feet. All this ointment. The room stinks of just this incredibly expensive fragrance. And, and her hair and her tears and her sobbing and noise. And it's just... What, what is this? Just, oh, man... She really loves Jesus. <laughs> Something up. She really loves Jesus, right? And they're, they're embarrassed. And Jesus turns to them and he says, I noticed that you didn't do this for me when I came in. <laughs> why, why has she done this? He says, Jesus says, she has been forgiven much and so she loves much. She loves much because she's been forgiven much. And he turns to these others and he says, you didn't do this for me. And it, the, the point he's making, the point they're meant to click with is they have no idea how desperately they need forgiveness. Because they're not prostitutes. They've never done anything so obviously outwardly wicked. They don't need forgiving. Nothing wrong with me. I'm a good person. I don't need forgiveness. Well, if you don't need forgiveness, of course you don't love God. Do you? And you'll just keep loving God by being outwardly religious. Oh, I very much love God. Oh, yes, I love God. Oh, I love God ever so much. Yeah. Not like her, strange lady. I just love God you know, in my way. You're not, you've not understood. You don't know him. This is the way to know him. The way to know him, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Have you seen your sin? Have you seen your heart? Have you seen that you're just the same as her? What, that whore? Oh yeah, yeah. Yes, you are. Yes, you are. Have you, have you loved the Lord God with all your heart or have you given your heart to other loyalties, other things have taken the place of Jesus, ever, ever happened, then you're just like her. <laughs> but you're about 100 yards behind her at best because she's the one that's seen her need. She's seen it and she's needed a save. She's cried out for forgiveness and she came to Jesus wondering if there was a hope and instead of casting her aside, Jesus welcomes her. I forgive you. I do not condemn you. <laughs> And she loves him. <laughs> of course she does. If 
you've ever been forgiven by Jesus, then you start to understand, oh, of course I love you. What it cost him to forgive us. He didn't just say, oh yeah, I forgive you. Yeah, that's easy. That's what I do. I'm the forgiving one. I dole out forgiveness. No, 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 no. What did it cost him? What did it cost him to forgive us? It cost the cross. It was everything. See, this is the point, friends. Until we get to know the God of the cross, we don't really know God. We don't. The way he is insisting on revealing himself is through his crucified son. This is why it's different. When, when Jesus is preaching this sermon, I can see the 12 disciples. Can you? I can see them all standing around saying, okay, that's the bar. We'll clear that bar. You've got to love me more than you love these other things. I can just say, yeah, yeah, we are hardcore. We are the 12. We love you more. These others don't, but we do. We are the disciples. We are so hardcore. We really love Jesus. We are so devoted. What was that? Family. We left them behind with our fishing nets. We love Jesus. We are so devoted to Jesus. What are they filled with? Is, is that love for Jesus? No, it's testosterone. That's what it is. <laughs> it's just willpower. It's just, it's, 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 it's kind of, it's self-assertion. It's self-confidence. It's self-indulgence. It's self-everything. It's self. How far does it get? Well, you remember what happened when Jesus said to Peter, you're going to deny me three times tonight. Peter says, listen, okay, okay, all the others might, (laughs) but I will never deny you. I'm hardcore. He pushed it to the hill, right to the hill. He's so confident in his own loyalty. He heard the loyalty sermon in Matthew chapter 10. That's me, that's me. What happens? You know the story? Around the fireplace, a few people, little slave girl says, weren't you one of the people with Jesus? No. Three times, with swearing, denies that he ever knew him. Shocked, horrified, weeps, cries bitterly. All of his courage turns to water. Because you can't love God like that. People who are full of themselves will never love God. Not really. They won't be loyal to him. Sorry, you, you can't. Full of yourself, you can't love him. Peter learned to love him after the cross. Because he came to find Peter. Came to find him. And he forgave him. And he gave him his promises, his future. He gave him dignity. And, and Peter didn't say, oh, I got forgiven. Oh, the bar's gone down then. So Matthew chapter 10 was, was you know, love me more than these. But now it's, okay, it's easy. He forgave me. So it's, it's easy now. It's all right, guys. You don't have to love him that much. He's lowered the bar. No, no, no. <laughs> Peter, you read this story. Beatings, prison, slander. They say he got crucified upside down, Peter. What happened to him? The coward. What happened to him? He built his willpower up after all. No, no, no. He found the crucified Jesus. He found the one who loved him. 
This is love, not that we love him, but that he loved us and gave himself in atonement for our sins. This is, this is how we learn. This is how we learn the loyalty Jesus calls from us. You want to love God, friends, you've got to see your need for him. You've got to be broken. You've got to see his grace. You've got to see his goodness. You've got to see his love for you. And that's why we come to the table every week. That's why we sing songs every week. That's why we meditate on these things. That's why we bring you back here every week because there's nothing better to cultivate a genuine, loyal love for Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your Son, our Saviour, born to us to take out the serpent, to swing his sword, crushing our enemy, even at the cost of his own heel, the bruising, the piercing, the beating, the sneering, the spitting and despising. You did it all out of love for us. Jesus, such love. We want to keep learning what it's like. I want to keep trusting you, learning your goodness, knowing that you're worthy of all the love we give. Lord, we're not going to pay you back. We never could. We wouldn't try. We just want to live our days enjoying all the grace you have for us. So help us to do that in this time, in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together. We're going to take bread and wine at the tables. Come and enjoy communion with us. If you're a Christian, you are so welcome to take bread and wine with us. If you're not yet a Christian or you're not sure, please don't take communion with us right now. But we would love to help you to become a Christian so that you can do that. If you'd like to do that, you can talk to one of us, talk to me, talk to one of the others that you saw on the platform or the person that brought you. Or you can even go on the website for weareemmanuel.com. Uh, we, we'll find ways to help you there or come and speak to us afterwards in the Meet the Team session on the balcony. Let's, let's respond to God in worship right now.